Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Here at GCA, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage. We're not allowed that way to skip anything. We have to see what the Word of God says in its continuity, in its context, And we are at the moment studying the book of Revelation, which can sometimes be difficult sledding. This morning is going to be reasonably complex. This morning we're going to hopefully not get lost in the weeds, but in order to understand this next section of the book of Revelation, we have to go back and do some Old Testament study in order to understand the things that John was referring to in the book of Revelation. As I've said to you repeatedly, the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. And the better that you know your Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation. And so that's why, as we have been going verse by verse through the book, whenever it was necessary to go back and find the foundational information in the Old Testament, we've taken the time to go back and look. And that's what we're going to do again this morning. I hope I don't lose anybody. For the rest of you, just hang on tight and come along with us. We're going to start this morning in Revelation chapter 6. Two weeks ago, in order to prepare for Revelation chapter 6, we took a look at the book of Daniel. And out of Daniel, we established Daniel's 70th week. And we established the fact that there was a series of kingdoms, physical, actual kingdoms, that took place in the history of Israel, and those kingdoms were all particularized in the book of Daniel because they were the kingdoms that oppressed Israel. They are part of Israel's history. We're going to see them again this morning. But that's not the end of the concepts that we need to understand in order to even understand verse 1 of chapter 6, because verse 1 of chapter 6 says, And I saw, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, And he went out conquering and to conquer. Two weeks ago, I said to you that this is commonly thought of as a direct reference to the beast, to Daniel's little horn, to that final leader of a final kingdom that is going to oppress Israel. Sometimes he's known by the nickname, the Antichrist. But to use Daniel's language, he's the little horn. He's the one who Paul in First and Second Thessalonians refers to as that man who's understanding dark sentences, that man who sets himself up in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
And so he is this final wicked ruler. But the image of a white horse and someone on it with a bow speaks of peace. When he comes onto the stage of history, he's going to be a peacemaker. Certainly you can see with what's going on even in the world right now, there is so much war, so many rumors of war. There's so much trouble in the world right now. How quickly would people flock to somebody who could actually bring peace to the world? If someone brought peace to Russia and Ukraine, if somebody brought peace to China, if somebody brought peace to the Middle East, I don't know if you saw the stories just this morning about the fact that U.S. installations in Iraq are being bombed by Iraq. And, of course, Iraq's sworn enemy is Israel. They've said they're going to blow Israel off the map. Okay, so the whole world seems like a kettle that's going to boil over at some point. There's even talk on the news about World War III. They're throwing around that kind of language. Can you imagine if somebody came on the scene who could bring peace? People would flock to that guy. People would agree, yes, you're our leader. Look what you've done. The nearly impossible, you've brought peace. And, of course, Jesus says that there's never going to be any real peace, any lasting peace in this world. In this world, we're going to have tribulation because we're not going to have real peace till the Prince of Peace comes back. Until he establishes a kingdom, just like he said, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The very next thing is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until the actual will of God is done on earth, there's never going to be peace. We're going to hear people saying, peace, peace. And then, according to Jesus, comes sudden destruction. And that's exactly what we see in verse 2 of Revelation 6. I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, no arrows, and therefore that's a peaceful time, and a crown was given to him, so he's going to be a leader, he's going to be a king, and he went out conquering and to conquer. He came out to overthrow people. And so the peace that brings him onto the stage of history is a false peace. It's not a lasting peace. Once he's got everybody thinking that he is the answer to all the world's problems, he's going to begin conquering. Now, what I want to emphasize at this moment is that he cannot come onto the stage of history until Jesus opens that seal and brings him onto the stage of history. So who's in charge? Christ is in charge regardless. God in his sovereignty is in charge regardless. It's sometimes difficult, especially with as stupid as the world is right now, sometimes it's difficult to say to people, yeah, but God knows what he's doing. God is sovereign. God's in charge. He has not fallen off the throne. As David wrote, When people say, where is your God? The answer is, our God is in the heavens doing whatever pleases him. Therefore, what's happening right now is exactly what pleases God. 
For 20 years, I've been standing here in this pulpit and saying to you, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And how did I know it was going to get worse? Because the Bible says it's going to get worse. And now that we're living in a moment in history when things are getting worse, I hope that that is leading, everything in history is leading to the return of Christ. I hope that these events are going to culminate in the return of Christ for his church. But even if it isn't now, even if it isn't in our lifetime, what we know for sure is he's coming back. But when he comes back, it's during a time of darkness in the world. Glorious darkness. God-ordained darkness. So never give up your hope, never give up your faith in the midst of the craziness of this world because we know that this final trouble cannot come onto the planet until Jesus opens the seal and allows it to happen. Now, we're going to read about four horsemen here, commonly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But these four horsemen are not unique to John or unique to the book of Revelation. In fact, they already are described and their function is described in the book of Zechariah. So this is another of the occasions where not knowing your Old Testament will confuse you if you just come plowing into the book of Revelation and you come across these four horsemen and you think that they are mysterious They are actually described in the Old Testament. So let's start today by going back to the book of Zechariah. Go back to Zechariah chapter 1. And we're going to read about these four horsemen. Zechariah chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. And I'm going to read a fairly long section here. Because I want you to see that these horsemen have a context. They're out patrolling. They're kind of like reporting to God what's going on on the planet. And what they are going to discover is that the nations and the planet are peaceful, kind of quiet. And God is going to become angered by the fact that the nations who have oppressed Israel are now living fat and happy. And so the four horsemen are in the context of the coming judgment of God. Therefore, when we see them in the book of Revelation, they're also coming in the context of the judgment of God. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red and sorrel and white horses behind him. And then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking to me said, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. 
So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Jerusalem with which thou hast been indignant these 70 years? The 70 years are a reference to the 70 years that Israel was in Babylon, particularly Judah, the southern kingdom, were in Babylon. We know from the book of Jeremiah that it was going to be for 70 years. And as we saw two weeks ago, Daniel was in Babylon reading the book of Jeremiah. And that's how he discovered that it was going to be 70 years. And therefore, he prayed to God, God, just do what you said you're going to do and make it 70 years. That's when an angel came to him and declared 70 sevens more for Daniel's people for Daniel's nation. So we know this is all about Israel. Here is Zechariah saying that after patrollers sent from God have gone out into the earth, they've come back with a report that we would think is good. It's all peaceful. It's all quiet on the earth. But then the angel of the Lord answers and says, O Lord of hosts, how long are you going to have no compassion on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? because you have been indignant with them for these 70 years. And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me, and he answered with gracious words, with comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But... I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Okay, now we've talked a lot about the fact that God is sovereign. And here is one of those examples, just like we see in Isaiah 10, where God has brought about circumstances on the planet. In this case, Israel scattered, gone into Assyria, Judah into the Babylonian captivity. Israel and Jerusalem have been replaced by Assyrians in the northern tribe. The temple is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed because God was angry with Jerusalem and with Israel for going after foreign gods. And so God is in the midst of punishing them, but how does God punish them? We're going to talk about this quite a bit this morning. How does God punish them? Well, by lifting his hand of protection over them so that their enemies and war and famine and wild animals have their way with them. So this is still God's punishment, but he works through human agency. In other words, the events of this planet, foreign kings, foreign armies, destroying other people, is all within the purview of God's absolute sovereignty. It's still happening according to what God has determined is going to happen. But then God, in his astounding sovereignty, gets mad with the enemies of Judah for the fact that they're at peace after they have conquered God's people. It's very much like when Assyria conquered Israel, the northern tribes. I mentioned it in Isaiah 10, because God then gets angry at Assyria for the haughtiness of heart 
with which they attacked Israel, even though they did exactly what God said they were going to do. God used them to punish his people, and then God punished them for the way they punished his people. Same thing here. God used Babylon and the surrounding nations in order to teach his people a lesson, and then he's angry with the enemies of Israel for the fact that they're at peace and fat and happy after they have conquered his people. And meanwhile, Jerusalem lays waste, and they're fine with that. And that raises God's ire. And you can only explain that theologically by saying, well, then God is really, really like crazy sovereign. He's totally in charge. And that's what Paul's talking about when he gets into uh, the book of Romans and says, you're going to say to me, why then does he find fault seeing as how no one resisted his will? It's exactly what Paul is talking about because he's asking the question, how can God be mad at people for doing what he determined they were going to do? How does he yet find fault seeing how no one resists his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back against God? Is the one that is formed going to say to the one who formed him, why did you make me like this? So Paul's answer is basically, God's in charge, get used to it. Paul's answer is, who are you to answer against God? So here we see an example of that. The nations, according to the four horsemen who have gone out and patrolled the earth, the whole earth is quiet and peaceful. But then the Lord of hosts says, I am exceedingly zealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the Gentiles, the nations, the ones who conquered them, because they are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, I was only dealing with one people group, they furthered the disaster. The fact that they're at peace and happy after conquering my people makes me even angrier. Therefore, thus says the Lord, this is verse 16, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. That absolutely happened during the time of Nehemiah, during the time of Ezra. The temple and Jerusalem, the walls, the city was all rebuilt. And when did that happen? After 70 years, exactly like God said. Verse 17, again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now we're going to see the same thing we've seen repeatedly when we went through the book of Isaiah verse by verse. What we saw is that the Old Testament prophets see all of the future as one great big lump sum. It's one of the reasons that the coming of the Messiah, according to the Jews, would then bring about the kingdom immediately. And Jesus, knowing that they thought the kingdom was going to come immediately, had to explain to them that he was going to go away and he was going to go to the Father, but that he was going to return to establish the kingdom. And so 
Here you see Zechariah talk about what's going to happen in their immediate future. After 70 years, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. But can anybody say at this moment that Jerusalem in all human history has been overflowing with prosperity and comfort? Nobody in Jerusalem today would say that. There's nothing but trouble going on over there, and that has been their history, including 70 AD, destroyed completely and didn't even exist as a nation on planet Earth until 1948. That's not exactly prosperous. And yet here is Zechariah speaking for God, saying that the time is coming. Again, he proclaims, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And then I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, there were four horns. Does anybody remember what horns represented in the book of Daniel two weeks ago? Horns represent kings and power, which is why the Antichrist figure is referred to as the little horn, who then rises up above all his fellows. And so now Zechariah sees the same thing. He sees horns, four horns in particular. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he answered me and said, These are the horns, the kingdoms, and the kings that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. At this moment in history, there had been exactly four kingdoms that had done that. Who'd have guessed the Bible's actually completely accurate? Because there was Assyria, conquered the northern tribes. Well, actually, it started at Egypt, and then they had to be delivered out of Egypt. And then there was Assyria, and then there was Babylon, and then there was the Medo-Persians. And it's during the time of the Medo-Persians that Jerusalem gets rebuilt. And so these four horns represent the four kingdoms that had historically conquered Judah and Israel and the people of God and had scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. In other words, Judah is completely conquered so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them the enemies, to throw down the power of the nations, the horn of the nations, who have lifted up their horns, their power, against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. So here is God. This is, I hope I haven't lost anybody yet because this is just astounding. This is God saying, I have used these nations to punish my people, to correct my people for the way that they have intermarried with foreign Gentile nations, for the way that they have chased after the gods of the foreign nations, because of the way they have entered into idolatry and haven't kept my, my seven-year Sabbaths and haven't kept my law, and therefore I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to use the Gentile nations to do it, but now I'm angry at the Gentile nations because they came after my people who belong to me and destroyed my city, the place where I chose to place my name, and therefore 
I'm angry at them, and I'm going to send my warriors to go in and fight against them. <laughs> it's amazing sovereignty. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. And these have come to terrify them to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Chapter 2. Then I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. The point of a measuring line is preparing to build something, measuring out the, the line, keeping everything straight. He had a measuring line in his hand, and so I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude and men and cattle that are in it. Okay, so here's a simple question. Does Jerusalem to this day require walls? Yeah. Yes. Has Jerusalem always required walls? Yes. Yes, that's their history. And yet here is a prophecy through Zechariah that someday Jerusalem is going to so overflow with men and with cattle, with wealth, with prosperity, that they're not even going to have to have walls because God himself is going to protect them from any enemies, from any famine, from any war, from any wild animals. God is going to protect them. Okay, that hasn't happened. Here's the question. Does it have to happen? Yes. It's in the word of God. So we either have to say, now this has to happen, or just admit you don't believe the Bible and go home and get some sleep because you lost an hour today. Or you got to say, that's what the Bible says. Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle that are in it. For I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Has that happened? No. No. But notice the imagery. When God brought these very people out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage, during the day, he was a pillar of smoke to guide them. During the night, he was a pillar of fire to light their way. That imagery of God as fire is repeated here. And God says that he's going to be a wall of fire all around Jerusalem to protect them from all of their enemies. And he will be in their midst. So how glorified are those people going to be if they have God himself, Yahweh, in their midst? Wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be really astounding. And yet, this is something that simply has not happened in human history yet. And so verse 6 says, Ho there! Which just means, pay attention. Hey there. 
Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, pay attention, Zion. That's Israel. That's, that's particularly Jerusalem. Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. They're in the Babylonian captivity, and here is God beginning to say, my people, wherever I scattered you, I scattered you to the four winds, north, south, east, west, and because I'm the one who scattered you, I'm also the one who can reassemble you and bring you back to your own land, just like I've promised ever since the Abrahamic covenant. I've dispersed you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord, but escape. Come back to the place that I have established for you. Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. And thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, Judah, Israel, touches the apple of his eye. God has this great affection for his people. He has great affection for the place where he has chosen to place his name, the temple in Jerusalem. And even though in the history of Israel and Judah, that land, those walls, that temple has been destroyed a number of times, there is yet the promise from God that he is going to protect them. He's going to dwell in their midst. They're going to rebuild the land, but when they rebuild it, they're not even going to need walls because his people are going to be regathered from the north, south, east, and west. You can see now why God would say there's going to be a multitude of men and cattle in it as he gathers his people back to the land that he gave them in perpetuity. And how is that all announced Four horsemen. So it's no surprise when the four horsemen show up in the book of Revelation. Now we know who they are. Now we know what their function is. In this same book, Zechariah, turn to chapter 6, just a couple of chapters forward. And I'm going to read the first eight verses because the four horsemen show up again. Now I lifted up my eyes again and I looked and behold... Four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were like bronze mountains. They glowed, they gleamed. With the first chariot was a red horse. With the second chariot, a black horse. With the third chariot, a white horse. And with the fourth chariot, a dappled horse. Exactly like the book of Revelation. Those are the same horsemen, the same colors, same thing. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country. The white ones are going forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. That's said three times. So what's their function? Patrol the earth. Patrol the earth. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? They go, they patrol the earth, and they report back to God. Verse 8. And then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, 
See, those who were going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. So they apparently have a function of reporting to God peace on the planet when there's trouble on the planet. And according to their reports, God either brings judgment, as we saw in the first chapter, or he brings peace and reconciliation to nations like we're seeing in this chapter. So that is their function, is to report to God after patrolling the whole earth. Go back to Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, it's very much like what Zechariah saw. He saw angels who spoke to him, who explained what was going on. John is getting the same thing. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer, because he is a conqueror who's going to start by bringing peace. Verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So after there comes this conqueror bringing about a false peace, which he then breaks in order to conquer the people when they're saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace, after that comes war. Now you might remember that Jesus said in Matthew 24, You're going to hear about wars and rumors of war, famine, flood, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. And then he said, but the end is not yet. Those are the birth pangs of the age to come. And so this is still talking about the fact that men in their sinful state are going to continue to be at war with each other. There were only four people in the book of Genesis who were named Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Cain slew Abel. As soon as there was sin on the planet, there was warfare and murder and death. But notice that this particular war is brought about by Jesus taking that second seal open. And what was already written in the scroll that he was reading from is this declaration that there is going to be war, massive war, worldwide war that is going to break out after the coming of the peacemaker who goes out to conquer. Third, starting in verse 5, when he had broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. We don't use scales much anymore unless you're buying produce at Publix. That's pretty much the only place you see scales anymore. But when buying, selling, trading in a marketplace, everybody had a scale, which is why there's so much said, like in the book of Isaiah, about being honest and having true and just scales. The fact that he has the scales means that he's involved in buying, selling, trading, and in this case, particularly food. 
as you're going to see. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. There's an enormous contrast in that statement, but we've just lost the sense of it. A denarius was a day's pay. You could work a whole day, typically, and a denarius was your adequate payment. You'd have to work a whole day to get a little bit of wheat. And wheat was considered a staple. Wheat is how you make your bread. Interestingly, at this very moment, and I'm I'm not reading the Bible through the current headlines, but I like the fact that every once in a while the current headlines just happen to correspond with the Bible because the Bible is true, because the Bible is accurate, and I like it when the historic events of planet Earth just happen to correspond with the Bible. But because we have uh, cut off importing oil from Russia, did you see how Russia responded? They're no longer going to export their wheat or fertilizer. China is hoarding wheat at this particular moment. And so if you read any of the economic projections right now, they're saying it's just a matter of months before we're going to feel it in our food supply. Because prices are going to go up and availability is going to keep going down. So the Bible is very current here when it says that one of the indications of what's going to happen on this planet after this conquering peacemaker comes out and makes war with everybody is that there's going to be a disparity of food. And the disparity is... People who just work a day and get their denarius are barely going to get a quart of wheat for it or three quarts of barley for a denarius. In other words, people are going to be starving. There's going to be famine. But among the well-to-do and rich and leaders of this world, do not harm the oil and wine. Throughout the Bible, oil and wine are a sign of prosperity, being well-to-do. So the declaration is... From the little people, starve them out. Take away their food supply. But to the leaders, to the people who are well-to-do, to the future Bill Gates of the world, they're going to be fine because the oil and the wine is going to keep flowing for them. By the way, that is not oil like the kind of oil we make gasoline out of. Get that out of your head. I know at this moment it seems like we're protecting the oil. You know, we're going to war for oil. But this is about olive oil which was used for all kinds of things, not just cooking, but for lighting lamps. It was a sign, again, of luxury. So the disparity between the haves and the have-nots is just going to continue to get worse and worse. Verse 7. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold... An ashen horse, or a gray horse, or a pale horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Hades, the grave, the underworld, and death. As a result of this fake peace conquering person, there's going to be war and bloodshed 
and massive starvation. And as a consequence, people are going to die massively. And death and Hades are going to come onto the scene to represent the the judgment of God being poured out onto the planet. And authority, verse 8 says, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. I said a half hour ago that throughout the Bible, those are the four things that God either puts on people or protects people from. War, famine, pestilence. We, as the church in the world, are kind of suffering from the most recent pestilence on the planet. Not only the COVID thing, and I agree, COVID is a thing. I've had COVID. Micah had COVID. Many of you have had COVID. It's a thing. It exists. It's a drag. I didn't enjoy it. I'm glad I got over it because we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and I was given an immune system. So thank God I'm better now, just like all of you are. But the politics of COVID have really taken a toll on the church world, including GCA. And so pestilence and wild animals. God is going to turn over the whole earth to death and Hades. Authority is given to them so that a fourth of all the people on the planet are going to die by the sword, die in war, or they're going to die from starvation and famine, or they're going to die from disease, or they're going to die from the wild beasts of the earth. Those are the first four seals And those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now we know who they are and what they do. I want to spend the balance of the morning talking about the fact that these all occur, as terrible as they are, as horrific as this description is, these things all occur because Jesus is one by one opening seals and bringing about these events on the stage of human history. God is still sovereign. God is still on his throne. God is still bringing these things on because he has predicted them in advance. And like we have seen throughout the Bible, whenever there is a prophecy from God that then occurs in human history, it occurs very genuinely. It occurs very physically. It occurs very obviously in the history of planet Earth. It's a literal occurrence corresponding with the prophecy of God. Here is another prophecy of God that can only be accomplished, can only be fulfilled if it includes killing a fourth of the earth. And yet, God's sovereign, and Jesus is in charge of it. What I want to show you is several examples from the Old Testament of this exact same thing. God consistently in the Old Testament pours out his judgments through human agency. And I'm going to show you several examples of that this morning. Because God uses human agency, and yet it's still God who is bringing about the punishment. It's still God who is sovereignly judging people, but he's doing it by using human agency, human nations, human armies, in order to dole out his punishment. And when he does it, he calls it, His wrath. In all of these passages, you're going to see God take credit for it and say, this is my wrath, even though it's being done by human armies, human agency. 
It's the same thing that we're seeing here in Revelation 6. That these problems are going to occur on the earth through human agency, but God is still in charge of all of it, still sitting on his throne, still doing whatever pleases him. For instance, I'm going to start in 1 Samuel for anybody who would like to read along. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel 15, and I'm going to start at verse 1. 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, and then I'm going to read verse 9. And even 10. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. So the order from God is, I'm angry at Amalek. So God is angry at Amalek and he's going to punish Amalek. How's he going to do it? By using Israel, human agency, to go punish Amalek. But Saul, good old Saul, decides, I know what God said, but I have a better plan. I'll do it my way. But Saul, verse 9, and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and everything that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. In other words, Saul, being the new king, decided, you know, these are all signs of wealth, all these good animals. I'll just keep the good animals. I know God said destroy them completely, and I know that God even listed them specifically, but, gee, they seem good to me. I'll just, I'll just keep them. Then the word of the Lord says for Samuel 15:10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Okay, so that's the backstory. Now 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28, I'm going to start reading at verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, This is when Saul, after declaring that there could not be a witch in Israel, and if any witches or necromancers were found, that they were to be destroyed, and now Saul is on the run worrying about his own life, and he goes and finds a witch. We know her as the witch of Endor. And she says, who do you want me to bring up for you? And he wants Samuel, who has since died. And Samuel shows up. And said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. And God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. And therefore I have called you so that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, 
Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy, your adversary? The Lord has done according as all that he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. Look at verse 18. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you today. And of course, the end of that is Saul says, and tomorrow you'll be with me. In other words, you're about to die. Okay, so this is referred to as the fierce wrath of God. The destroying of Amalek is referred to as the fierce wrath of God. How is it accomplished? By human agency. The directive is to go and destroy them utterly. And this is the way that God works throughout the Old Testament. That he declares his wrath on people, but then he uses humans to accomplish it. 2 Kings 23. Very clear statement here in verse 26. I'm only going to read 26 and 27. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. That was the king of Judah at the time, and he had provoked God, so God was going to pour out the fierceness of his great wrath. How's he going to do it? The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight the same way I removed Israel, the same way that I took the northern tribes into the Assyrian captivity. I'm going to take Judah and I'm going to put them in the Babylonian captivity. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said my name shall be there. And how did he accomplish that? Human agency. He brought down Nebuchadnezzar. He brought down the armies of Babylon. And they conquered and they destroyed. So again, God has a habit of referring to his own fierce wrath and then accomplishing it by bringing enemies and armies and death and famine through human agency. Second Chronicles chapter 12, I'm going to be reading six verses. I'm going to start at verse 2. This is talking about the kingdom of Rehoboam, which is the northern tribes, before they had been taken off into the Assyrian captivity. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Now, normally, nobody would be able to come up against Jerusalem or conquer Jerusalem because God would always protect them. But in this case, he wants to punish the kingdom of Rehoboam because they have chased after their other gods and they have forsaken the law of God. And therefore, God brings up Shishak, king of Egypt, to come against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number the Lubim and the Sukim and the Ethiopians. And he captured the fortified cities of Judah, and he came as far as Jerusalem. And then Shemei, the prophet, came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. 
and said to him, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me. So I have also forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled himself and said, the Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei saying, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak, but they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries of the Gentiles. Okay, why did I read all that? For one simple reason. God refers to it as his wrath. It's clearly his wrath. But how is he accomplishing his wrath? He's doing it through Shishak and the armies of the Egyptians. But God is still in control. God is still completely sovereign because when he sees that Rehoboam has come down to Jerusalem and has met with the leaders there and that they have repented, God hauls back the armies of Shishak and the Egyptians because God is in control. And he refers to it as his great wrath through human agency. You get it? Mm-hmm. I have more examples. Are you bored yet? No. No? Okay. Second Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Okay, so he has compassion on Israel and Judah and his dwelling place, which is the temple in Jerusalem. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord, there's that language again, God is going to pour out his wrath. The wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, because of his wrath, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hands. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar because he was executing his fierce wrath. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and the officers, he brought them all to Babylon. So how did God execute his fierce wrath? Through Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar. This is the consistent pattern that I want you to understand, and I'm pointing it out over and over out of the Old Testament, because when you see it in the book of Revelation, there's no difference. Is the exact same God acting the exact same way. Here, just listen for a moment so that I can read quickly and we can get out of here in time. Ezra 5.12 says, But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. So that's a brief summation of what we just read. It's the idea that the wrath of God is being executed by the fact that God gave his people into the hands of their enemies. Here, let me see if I can make an application for you. 
Do you know why you ate today? I prayed at the beginning of the service. Thank you, God, for giving us food today and putting clothes on our body. Thank you that we're in our right minds and know our own name. Do you know why that is? Because God has protected you. And if God becomes angered at his people, he will correct them because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And that chastening might be at the hands of other men, other people, circumstances here on planet Earth that will cause you to rethink your way and to rethink the way that you have been either obedient or listening or paying attention to God and his word. It's the way God has always, always worked. Two more quick passages. The first is out of Lamentations. This is Jeremiah writing. I'm just going to read three verses from Lamentations 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast them from heaven to earth, the glory of Israel. And he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off the strength of Israel. See, he was always able to hold back their enemies. He was always able to hold back the famine. He was always able to provide them rain in due season. He was always able to give them the land of milk and honey. He was always able to keep them wealthy, prosperous, and cared for. But in his anger, in his correction, in his wrath, he withdrew his hand in his fierce anger And he cut off the strength of Israel. So Israel was not able to defend itself anymore because God held back their strength. And he has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. In other words, not only was he protecting Israel, but he was holding back their enemies. All he has to do is take his hand away. And he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming roundabout. So Israel and Judah were utterly consumed. We know that historically. It's happened a couple of times. God here takes credit for it and says that happened because I stopped protecting you and stopped holding back your enemies. And all I have to do is lift this hand and you're going to be conquered. And I won't give you the strength to stand. Finally, Ezekiel 21, 31 and 32 says, I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow on you with the fire of my wrath. And I will give you into the hand of brutal men. So how is God defining his wrath here? He says, I'm going to pour out my wrath on you. What is that going to look like? How is that going to be accomplished? I'm going to turn you over to the hands of brutal men. I will give you into the hand of brutal men who are skilled in destruction, and you will be fuel for the fire, and your blood will be in the midst of the land. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken it. Revelation 6. 
I hope now, as I read through this, that you can see that this is completely in keeping with everything else God has already said in the Old Testament. This is a consistent personality profile of God and what he's like. And even when there comes trouble and wrath on the planet, he always takes credit for it. When there is peace and welfare on the planet, God did it. When there is well-being on the planet, God does it. When there is trouble, trial on the planet, God does it. And ultimately, in the book of Revelation, here is Jesus himself who took the scroll out of the hand of God the Father. So God the Father is responsible for the scroll and everything that's in it, and only Jesus was able to open it. There was crying and weeping in heaven because no one was found who was worthy to approach God and take the scroll out of his hand and open that scroll and release the seals and bring about this kind of destruction on the planet. But Jesus executed the fierce wrath of God onto the planet, and the first thing he did was turn the planet over to a man of fierce countenance. Do you understand the continuity, Old and New Testament? There's nothing new happening here in Revelation. I'm just going to read it out, and we'll call it a morning. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. By the way, is it worth adding? Oh, I said I was just going to read it out without commentary. You know I can't do that. Is it worth pointing out here that he was given a crown? And then he went out conquering and to conquer with everything that we've read out of the Old Testament. If God didn't determine that he was going to conquer, could he? No, he couldn't conquer without the omnipotent power of God turning over to him the people groups that he conquered and giving him the power to conquer. I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, authority, power, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he, Jesus, broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the planet Earth and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. By the way, who gave him that great sword? God. God. Jesus in his declaration. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. 
and authority was given to him. By who? God. God gives him the authority. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth. Here, let me see if I can nail this for you. The book of Job, which we refer to frequently, arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament. And Satan comes and has a discussion with God about Job. Who's in charge? God. Because Satan says things like, well, yeah, he's upright. Yeah, he's a good guy. But he wouldn't be like that if you didn't make him so rich. And you, you've taken care of him, so it's no wonder he worships you. God says, you can go touch everything he has, but you can't touch him. And then when Job retains his integrity, Satan goes back and argues again with God. And God ends up saying, skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. Let me touch his body. Let me put disease on him. And God says, okay. Which means, by the way, he couldn't do it without God say so. And God says, you can touch his body. You can't kill him. God makes that differentiation because God is in charge of everything. Same thing here. When this conquering fake peacemaker is on the planet, there's going to be death. Hades is going to follow. Grave is going to be with it. Widespread death and authority is given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, to kill with famine, to kill with pestilence, and to kill with the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, there's the happy, feel-good message of the morning. So, yay, yippee, right, kids? Whee! We visited that church this morning, and he talked about death, 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 death. Here's the good news. I hope if you come away with nothing else, you realize that even as the world is getting crazier and stupider right now, and it certainly is. And the world is becoming more violent right now. And wars and rumors of wars. The world is a dangerous place and increasingly dangerous for Christians to live in. Who's in charge? God. God is still in charge. You know, Jesus said, don't fear men and what they can do to you. Fear God. The one who can cast body and spirit into the outer darkness. Fear him. Worship him. Worry about what he thinks of you. Because the worst thing that humans can do to you is kill you. And if you belong to God, all they've done is sent you home. In other words, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you don't lose in this lifetime. You may be corrected in this lifetime. But you're never going to have to undergo the wrath of God, which we read about a lot this morning, because as Paul says, we are not appointed to wrath. Because we're in Christ. He already took the wrath of God for us. So as you see, the events that are described throughout the Bible, not just in the book of Revelation, as I hope I proved this morning, as you see the worrisome events that take place on planet Earth, don't worry. Keep praying, keep looking up, Keep trusting the God who put you here in the first place because he's still on his throne doing whatever pleases him. And if he saved you, he was pleased to do it. You got it? Got it. Well, then I'm done. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.